Welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm coming to you from a hammock in the northern uh, reaches of Guatemala, along with my friend Ellen Dimmitt. We're just wrapping up our second to last survey day here in Guatemala and wanted to give you all an update on our project here. Um, as we don't have laptops or internet or anything here, we will not have a research highlight or review highlight today. But um, welcome back on the podcast, Ellen. Thank you. It's good to be back. Woohoo! Yeah, we've had um, quite a couple weeks together. Um, so why don't we start out, I think during our last interview, we didn't dive as deeply into kind of the the nitty gritty of your research and of your project as I would like. So why don't we start out with talking a little bit about um, the goals of the study that you're conducting down here and some of the, uh, the impacts you're really hoping for it to have. For anyone who is just tuning in now, I am in the second year of my PhD research at Oregon State University in the Wildlife Sciences program. And a part of my dissertation work is metabarcoding of large carnivore scats, particularly felid scats, so jaguar, ocelot, puma, jaguarundi, whatever we can find, in the Myobiosphere Reserve of Guatemala. And this project actually started with just a subsample of 30 scats that were sent to us by Roni from the Wildlife Conservation Society of Guatemala for us to analyze in our lab, but has now grown into a multi-year, multi-park scat collection and metabarcoding analysis of several different predator species. So what exactly is metabarcoding um, for someone who's not getting a PhD related to genetics? And um, is it is this new? Is this something that's been around for a while? And we're doing this with scat, obviously. So, so take us through some of the basics of metabarcoding and diet analysis. Yeah, so with the advances in DNA sequencing technology that have occurred over the past decade or so, we are now able to identify two species, the prey that are present within a predator's scat, by reading a specific, in our case, a 100 base pair sequence of their genome that acts as a sort of barcode or genetic fingerprint that allows us to actually differentiate individual species by the differences in that sequence. Um, metabarcoding has been used sort of all across the world now in different studies of not just carnivore diets, but the diets of all sorts of creatures, as well as characterizing um, ecological communities through eDNA and things like soil and water. But in this system in particular, um, and actually across the entire neotropics, to my knowledge, this is the first time that a metabarcoding study will be employed to study neotropical carnivore diets. In the Myobiosphere Reserve in particular, there have been previous diet studies of jaguar and puma that have used mechanical sorting of scats. So that looks like rinsing the scats in a sieve to pick out the bones and fur that's left behind and using that to try and guess what they ate. But evidence suggests now that these mechanical sorting methods actually miss a lot, especially smaller species that could be present in the diets. So basically the objective of our study is to 
refine and hopefully broaden our understanding of what things like pumas and jaguars are eating in this part of the world. Gotcha. Thank you for that. So yeah, mechanical sorting seems relatively clearly to be something that wouldn't be nearly as precise, um, potentially especially for some of these smaller felids, um, but is that true for jaguars and pumas as well still? Yeah, based on my results, so I already have some initial results from around 100 scats that were collected here last year um, by me. <laughs> and those already indicate that there are some prey species like small parrots, like amphibians and reptiles, a lot of smaller mammals, especially arboreal rodents, um, that are showing up in puma and jaguar diets that have not been previously identified in these mechanical sorting studies. We're also seeing that the proportional contribution or proportional occurrence of species like monkeys in puma diet, for example, um, may be higher than what has been previously estimated by mechanical sorting methods. Gotcha. That's really interesting. So, you know, this is <laughs> this is such a, a science 101 sort of question, but what are some of the kind of potential impacts of this research? Like, I can see how it's really cool and interesting but i'm curious what you know what what was roni potentially hoping for when he contacted you and what are you hoping to maybe see as uh, an, a long-term impact of this research well roni and wcs guatemala in general are very interested in jaguar conservation in mm. particular given that jaguars have been a flagship species for the conservation of this mesoamerican forest for a long time now um but given you know, it, it, it's interesting considering how heavily studied jaguars are, we still have a pretty poor understanding of their diet in these areas. And for effectively targeting conservation measures, it's important for us to understand what resources are essential for habitat um, for large carnivores. So understanding what they eat, besides being, you know, an interesting um, gap in our natural history understanding of these animals, is also important for effectively targeting conservation measures for the animals themselves as well as their habitat. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It would be pretty challenging to figure out what kind of constitutes an intact, healthy jaguar supporting ecosystem without having a really good understanding of what they're eating. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that it may also vary quite a bit from, the, I mean, jaguars are such a wide ranging species that hopefully this is just the sort of thing that is going to get the ball rolling and get started here. And, you know, maybe we'll learn more about some of the, the jaguars that are up in the, the Mexican, you know, up in Northern Mexico and all the way down to Central South America um, one day. Uh, I know you, uh, you already have enough projects for your PhD, so that's just a free idea for someone else. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, why don't we pivot a little bit, unless there's, is there anything else you want to bring up about your research or WCS or your work here that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I did want to mention that the park that we're in right now, in particular Laguna del Tigre, is a really unique instance of conservation need. It's very threatened by narco deforestation, which is a complicated issue, but essentially involves um, the intentional setting of wildfires to clear land, parkland illegally, to move in um, communities for cattle ranching operations that end up being um, money laundering or tangentially associated with narco-trafficking activities, cocaine specifically, um, in this part of the world. So our data collection is happening right along uh, what they call the limit. It's sort of the last frontier 
of intact forest here abutting the rangeland that has been encroaching with narco deforestation progression from the west. So understanding the ecological complexity and sort of reconstructing food web assemblages for this part of the forest is particularly important given that this area is the front line of conservation for the ecosystem. And we've also got a pretty special bird that still uses this place to nest. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the guacas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this subspecies of scarlet macaw um, that lives in southern Mexico, northern Guatemala, and Belize um, only nests, as far as we know, in the Laguna del Tigre National Park where we are. And there's estimated to be around 250 to 300 individuals remaining in the wild here, which is obviously not very many and sort of the main driver drivers of the population declines for these macaws have been loss of habitat through this narco deforestation as well as poaching of nests for the illegal wildlife trade um, which is mainly uh, supporting a market in the united states of pet scarlet macaws Gotcha. Yeah, thank you. And we've had the, the privilege of getting to see some of these these macaws over pretty much every day we've been here. And it's been a real treat. They're such, such cool birds. Um, and it's a real, you know, it's a real shame to to know that they're under threat pretty much, you know, here as well. Um, there's a really good book if anyone's interested in scarlet macaws that I just love recommending to people called The Last Flight of the Scarlet Macaw, which is about the loss of, um, I assume, this subspecies last nesting area in Belize. Um, so these, these poor, poor birds are really struggling and, um, anyway, it's been a real privilege to see them. So why don't we pivot now a little bit to talking about the dogs now that we, we have maybe one short survey day left before we hop back on the boat and back in the car and make our pilgrimage back to civilization. Um, what have been some of your impressions or observations of working with the detection dogs so far? Well, I'll start by saying that I'm really pleased with how much scat they have found, barley in particular, and I wish that they were staying for my hold field season because I know we would get a ridiculous amount of scat that way. But even so, just in our seven or so days of sampling with them, we've managed to find 60 scats, um, which is incredible. It's way more than I would ever find by myself or have ever found by myself here before. In fact, I think 60 scats is about what I would collect in two months of on-foot searches by myself here. So the fact that we got that done in seven days is very exciting for me. Something I'm also really stoked about is that the dogs found a lot of mesocarnivore scats, scats that I anticipate um, being from ocelot or even something more exciting like a tyra, which is a mustelid species that's sort of elusive here, or maybe even margay, which is um, a congener of ocelots that are more arboreal. And those, because of their size, are a lot harder for me to find. Um, they're just less uh, cons conspicuous? Conspicuous. Yeah, conspicuous, yeah. Less conspicuous on the ground. So that we've been able to add a larger sample size of those to our overall analysis, thanks to the dogs, is a sort of unexpected and really exciting result of our work here. 
Yeah, it's definitely been cool to see, especially today was kind of uh, unofficially dubbed Miso Carnivore Day. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't plan on that. We didn't tell Barley to do that, but we actually, to our knowledge, didn't find any Jaguar or Puma scat today. And all of our samples were tiny and there were several that you didn't want to collect. And then we got a little bit closer and saw that there was hair or bone in them. And it's going to be really cool to hear what those turn out to be. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website canineconservationists.org shop. We've talked in the past on this show about having dogs that generalize really easily as a little bit of a double-edged sword. And I've talked in the past about Barley being one of those dogs who does very easily kind of ask questions about things that he's found. Um, And there are definitely downsides to that. But one of the upsides for a project like this is that he does tend to bring us to some of these tiny, interesting um, scats that as long as we can determine to be carnivore are collectible and therefore rewardable for barley. So it's been fun to see. It's also exciting because I don't, I don't think that we have any idea what a lot of these meso carnivores here eat. I, to my knowledge, there is no comprehensive study of ocelot diet that's been published. There's no even inkling of an understanding of what the mustelid species here eat. And given the size and hairiness of some of the scats we saw today, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we end up having some smaller weasels showing up um, as the defecators of these scats. So even if, you know, it's just a couple of data points from them, it would be exciting in that we are the first ones to catch such a in-depth glimpse into the diets of these neotropical mustelids. Yeah, and some of those scats were really nice and fresh, so uh, we're hoping they amplify really beautifully for you. And uh, you know, we're uh, we're praying to the the, the meta barcoding gods. <laughs> but um, a lot of those scats today looked really, really nice um, for you. So yeah, is there what else has kind of come up as you've been working with the with working with and behind the boys? I think that watching the alerts that. Barley and Niffler have both had on what we assume to be urine spots where cats had urinated. Some of them were actually so obviously latrines um, that because they reeked of cat pee smell. Um, I think that's been really interesting because it really shows how present these cats are on the landscape, even though you don't see them often. I mean, in some spots, they were alerting every 100 meters or so to a urine spot that you know was obviously fresh enough for them to detect. It's really cool to see them alerting to these urine spots that we would never pick up on otherwise and how that reflects the activity of these cats across the landscape even with so relatively so many people here. I, I think we have a group of maybe 10, 15 people working and these cats are really all among us. We actually found a dead possum at the entrance to our camp area yesterday that had been disemboweled pretty obviously by a cat and it hadn't been there on Kayla's morning walk so it clearly happened in during the morning hours when we were eating breakfast or out on our first (laughs) survey or something so just to have more evidence for you know the species the amazing cats that we're sharing this system with right now has been exciting and cool. 
Yeah, it's been a real treat, and I'm, I can't remember whether or not we spilled the beans on this during our first episode, but we also had the incredible privilege of getting to see a jaguar on our first day of surveys on one of our sites. Um, so I don't know if you want to tell the story, because I actually was um, in the middle of rewarding Niffler for one of his finds and <laughs> didn't get a great look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that I was here for four months last year and didn't see a single cat. So to see one on my first week in the field this time clearly speaks to the good luck that having dogs in the field brings. (laughs) But also I know that there are people who have worked here for, um, you know, 10, 15 years and have still never seen a wild jaguar. So I just feel incredibly privileged to have gotten to see that. But anyway, we were on a trail and we're bent down looking at a scat that Niffler had alerted to. And one of the guys in our group, told us um, jaguar and pointed and we looked up and there was a young jaguar. I actually initially thought that it must have been a puma just based on its size or even, yeah, I guess a puma. Um, But then Tony saw it through the binoculars and was like, no, it has spots. And we watched it kind of casually saunter across the walking path, maybe a hundred feet from us at about 2 p.m. in broad daylight. Um, So very special sighting for us. Yeah, it's certainly been something we've been really spluttering over and just overjoyed with. It's yeah, it's such a privilege to get to see some of these cats and especially kind of contrasting with my time in Kenya last year where I did fully expect to get to see lions um, and cheetahs while I was there and was hoping to see a leopard but got, got, uh, got screwed on that one. Um, <laughs> uh, or didn't have the luck to see a leopard, I suppose. Um, and certainly coming here, did not expect to get to see one. Um, we've had a couple other pretty cool wildlife sightings and encounters. So I think now might be a good time to just pivot into some story time. We can go back and forth on some of our favorite or maybe least favorite moments of the field. Mm-hmm. It might be worth sharing some, uh, some of the messier sides of field work as well. So I'll go, uh, I'll go next with, we had a, a really nice little peccary sighting, um, as we were in the car on our way home from one of Barley's first really, really good surveys of the trip. Um, and just kind of, we all looked up and there was four peccaries darting across the road. And again, they're one of those animals that you just don't get to see very often. We, we know they're here, but um, the uh, the phrase coming from our driver at the time was, oh, cuesta verlos, which mm-hmm. means, it, you know, it's, it's hard or it's costly to see them. So that was really nice. Today on the trail, Barley continued his streak of finding interesting dead things and surprised <laughs> us with a prehensile-tailed porcupine that had decomposed into a skeleton and pile of very interesting quills. So that was really cool to see. I've seen them on my camera traps here before, but never gotten to get up close. And it was interesting. They were smaller than I expected them to be. So that was an unexpected treat. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, And that was a funny one too. I've actually got it on video because I I saw his change of behavior and thought he was going to alert something. And (laughs) then it turned out to be a dead porcupine. Um, Yeah, so I guess maybe on the on the real side of fieldwork, our bug situation has been pretty, pretty gnarly here as one would expect in the tropics. Um, Ellen and I both got hit pretty hard by a type of mite that um, actually ended up filling uh, my, my bites, which were pretty dense in kind of my sock and, um, bikini area all ended up filling with a really nice clear liquid and then bursting eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's been real gnarly. Um, and then we've been getting quite a few ticks. Barley had one day where he had about 30 ticks. So his post search routine is definitely, um, as much massage and stretching as tick check at this point. Luckily can kind of do all three of those at the same time. 
Today, when I was in my hammock, I got bit or stung by something that made half of my hand turned white, turn white <laughs> and swell. Um, and it's still white and swollen and I'm still not sure what it is. So that's always exciting, <laughs> I, guess, I guess is one way of putting it. But um, I've spent enough time down here now to know that those things aren't worth panicking about. It's just part of research in the tropics. <laughs> Yeehaw. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, on, I'll just on the note of rough fieldwork things, and I've got a fun story that I'll share as well. Um, my first two nights here, I think, um, both nights I had pretty gnarly nightmares about the dogs having some sort of horrific wildlife interaction. I had one dream where Barley was eaten by hippos or uh, mur murdered by hippos, I suppose. And then another where um, Niffler was eaten by a crocodile. Um, so anxiety yeah lots of lots of subconscious anxiety but actually i think it's almost safe to say this now we have not seen any venomous snakes so far which is that really we're alive nice. that we're alive we did see yes um a dead fertilance yeah um we did see a dead fertilance one day which barley showed some interest in and then kind of got uh told pretty sternly to back up and leave it um and we had a really good boa shed the day before that as well that he actually um did again show a pretty significant change of behavior but didn't alert to um and that's always an interesting thing as i've said with barley who's so in tune with me um when we find things that we don't want him to find i have to be kind of careful to bring him away and distract him as we all you know take pictures or pick up the boa skin or whatever because he is so in tune with these sorts of things and so desperate for his ball that if we show too much interest in something that we don't want him to find, whether that's high risk or not, um, he is liable to go on and find that, which brings us to, brings us to the story I was pretty excited to share. So um, on our first day in one of these study sites that we were at, um, our, um, our, co our compadres over from WCS shared some forest fruit with us. Um, it was called a Chico Sapote, Sicote. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which one? Wait, are you talking? Oh, Chico Sapote. Chico Sapote. Yeah. Um, which is kind of like an apricot. It's delicious. Um, they shared a little bit um, with us, and I shared a little bit with Barley, let him eat a little bit. Didn't think any of it, anything of it. We finished the rest of our survey. The next day, we went out on a trail that was pretty lightly trafficked, and I think over the course of the entire survey, he only found two scats. Um... And on that same day, he found us somewhere between eight and 12 Chico Sapotes along the trail. It was so annoying. It was so annoying. <laughs> it was awful. Um, so it went from kind of like the first couple like walking over and checking what he had and being like, oh God, it's a Chico, to very quickly realizing that we had a problem um, <laughs> to starting to try, you know, I was then sending Ellen over to look at them because for barley even me walking over to check what he's got um starts the process of that dopamine dump you know research has shown that dopamine peaks before the reward and in anticipation so he's actually on a neurochemical level getting rewarded in a lot of ways whether or not he gets the ball so i had to send ellen over to look and then tell him to go on and search and by the end of the day he was starting to show a change of behavior around the chicos um and not alerting to them and then luckily the next day he didn't find any and we haven't had a problem since. But one of those kind of classic conservation dog hiccups that would be challenging to uh, rectify 
if you were a really inexperienced handler, um, and uh, not saying that to toot my own horn or anything, just that um, it, it, it just goes to show how easy it is to send these, these really amazing dogs sideways and kind of ruin them as a survey tool. I don't know if you've got another story or anything you wanted to add about the, the Chico see. story. Well, right now, as we're sitting in this hammock watching fireflies light up over the field and the stars start to come out, just makes me feel really amazed and grateful that we get to be out here for our work. And every morning, we've been, we've had fantastic weather, I'll say, and every morning we have woken up to the most incredible quality of light as the sun rises over the rainforest and turns the low fog sort of bright orange. And it makes me think every morning as I'm waking up about how people pay, you know, thousands of dollars to come out here on ecotourism trips just to see a scene like that. And we are fortunate enough to get to see it as a part of our job. And it makes all of the bug bites and long field days and sweat and scraped knees worth it. (laughs) Way worth it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here and just we're so grateful for our partners at WCS and all these parks and all the Garda Parques that are coming out and helping us machete our way through some of these trails. They've been cooking for us. They're currently singing in the over in the kitchen area. Um, we've been told that there will be a dance tonight. Um, I, I, did, I did commit us to a dance party tonight, so I, I think that that's happening whether we're up for it or not. Yeah, so we're all going to put on our finest bug spray and (laughs) go enjoy. Um, But yeah, and again, it's just been, we've been so grateful for all the help and support from the teams out here. And um, I guess one other thing that um, I've been really grateful for has been, this has been Niffler's first time sleeping in a tent. And he has been a perfect angel. He was Little Spoon most of last night. hasn't been fussing too much over any of the forest sounds or anything like that, which I was worried about because um, I really, really struggle to work well um, if I'm not sleeping well. And it is so hot here during kind of our downtime in between surveys that it's pretty hard to sleep. So it would be challenging if we weren't getting good sleep overnight. I'd like to give uh, another shout out to Roni and Christy at WCS Guatemala for making all of this possible. I know that Christy's been working her butt off in particular to get all the logistics figured out for us to get the animals out here and to get the whole field crew out here. We've been super supported by people this entire time. Um, the company and the food and the spirit of everyone has just been great. Um, I'm also extremely grateful, as always, for my mentor, Tall, um, because this project and all of the incredible opportunities I've had wouldn't be possible without him. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to thank Tylenol PM for coming through for me in my time of need. Yeah, well, and with that, I think we'll wrap it up here. We may have more to say um, at some point about this project. We'll probably try to get Ellen back on um, when we get some of this data published and hopefully when we have some interesting results about what some of these scats turn out to be. Um, I keep wanting to tell stories about some of the scats we found, but honestly, they're just not very good stories because it's basically 
you know, Barley was sniffing and then he started sniffing harder and circling and crabbing and bracketing. And then he alerted and then it was something weird uh, <laughs> that we decided to collect because it looked it looked right, but not something that we would have expected humans to find. And there's just been a lot of really cool, exciting stuff like that, but they're just not very good stories. So um, with all that, I hope that everyone at home is feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. I hope you're, you enjoyed this episode and we'll be back in your earbuds next week to talk about more things conservation detection dogs. Thanks for coming on, Ellen. Thanks for having me and thanks for being out here and thanks for bringing the dogs. It's been great. Yeah, I mean, thanks for, thanks for having me. This has been a real, a real treat um, in a lot of ways. So, all right, we'll let y'all go. Have a good rest of your week. Yeah, and we're going to go eat, uh, hopefully, beans and tortillas and cheese um, because there's literally nothing else in this world that I want more. 